Hello, listeners, and thank you for joining us on The Family True Crime Podcast. I'm Bridget. And I'm Caroline. Sometimes our dogs pop in, and you know, my dog Fiona and my dog Pippin are out sleeping in the front room right now, and I've, I've really threatened them with murder. I just, I call it murder you. So I hope they don't bark, but if they do, that's who they are, Fiona and Pippin. The Family True Crime Podcast is our passion project. We're so happy, very appreciative to have you listen to our stories of ordinary families that go murderously wrong. We start with the crime and the whodunit, and we try to figure out what was going on in this family heading up to the murder. What 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 was going on? We love to talk about family dynamics, figure out what happened here. And we always want to know what you have to say as well. So be sure and leave us a comment. Today's episode is entitled Malignant Pretender. And you're going to realize why in just a minute. Let us begin to tell the story about this crime. And it happens on Easter morning, 1992. Now, whenever a murder happens on a, uh, you know, on a day like Christmas Day or Easter Day, um, I always think, okay, what was I doing Easter 1992? Because my patterns with kids at that time were probably pretty much the same, although they were starting to get kicked out of the nest. And getting kicked out of the nest might come up in our story today. Anyway, we're on the northern California coast with a very wealthy family, a millionaire family, highly regarded. Dale and Glee Yule family and their two grown children. There's Tiffany, who's 25. She's working on her master's degree. And there is Dana. He's 13. He's almost got his bachelor's degree at Santa Clara University in finance. Tiffany and her mom, Glee, drive back to their home in an upscale bedroom community of Fresno called Sunnyside. Dale Yule, piloted his plane back home. He owned an aircraft company. That's how he got so rich. And he usually flew himself all over the place. When Glee and Tiffany arrived home, they were both shot, execution style, by an intruder who was lying in wait. Later, that same killer would kill Dale Yule the, the same way just execution. So fast, he never knew what hit him. As heinous as this crime was, it gets worse because the killer was the roommate of Dana Ewell at Santa Clara University. His name uh, we'll get to in a minute. And Dana Ewell had ordered the hit with a promise of a 50-50 split of the family fortune worth about $8 million. That's about $18 million in today's money. And Dana, as the only living family member, would inherit everything. And here's another very difficult fact. For me, it's very difficult to think that the dead bodies of the family, he just annihilated, this killer, lay undetected for two days. So, Caroline, I don't know. I'm thinking, you know, we're in this bedroom community. It's California. It might be kind of getting sort of hot. I'm thinking it probably was starting to smell 
So, I mean, I don't know the rate at which things start to smell. Do you? No, but you often hear that the, you hear two things, that a dead body is is immediately decomposing and that the smell is is undeniable and you know right away. So I have to presume there was some kind of oddity about it. Yeah. Anyway, it happened. And the classic motives are probably going to pop up. Greed. Why else do people kill? Let me think. Um, well, I did threaten to kill my dogs early today because I don't want my life to get hard. Crimes of passion, maybe, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Crimes of passion. That's what we'll call a dog passion. Anyway, well, obviously, this wipeout of a prominent family is is going to rock Fresno and beyond in a chilling way. If my neighbors were murdered, I'd be scared to death. Um, I mean, I would just be frightened that I'm next. You know, I'm right next door. Maybe they were coming for me and they went to the wrong house. I mean, those are my thoughts. An entire family save one lucky son murdered in their own home. Who's next? And who would want to kill this sweet, unpretentious family? And in order to understand why these three good people are dead on the floor of their own home and why their youngest child, Dana, would mastermind the hit, we have to kind of go back and get to know Yule, uh, the Yule family a little bit. So a lot of people admired the parents in the family, Dale and Glee Yule, two people who lived as kids through a dark time in America, the Great Depression. I mean, they, you know, they became millionaires eight times over. Both of them worked hard. They had determination. But who would know it from the way they lived? This is what's, I think, very endearing to me, for me, about this family. Their house, for example, uh, 5663 East Park Circle Drive, was an in an upper middle class neighborhood, a bedroom community, as I said. But it was very unpretentious. It was a brown one-story ranch-style home. It wasn't the mega, you know, palace that people like to build and show off their wealth. Their friends will tell you that they never flaunted their wealth. They did spoil their kids, Dana and Tiffany. Okay, what, do you, what does that word spoil mean? I don't know. What do you think? Uh, to give without having earned, and then to continue to give when no longer deserving. <laughs> That's sort of my yeah. ideal about right. spoil. You you never have to worry about a thing, honey. Mm -hmm. Everything is going to be perfect. That's why it's a slippery uh, slope, like you know, because it's it's out of love to protect to nurture. But then the slippery slope comes when you know you're not teaching them how to love self, nurture self. So <laughs> I know I, I do have. Uh, it's a bit of a trigger for me when I hear the word like uh, my little princess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that there's something about that that has a flip side mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that doesn't honor the whole person. And I think parents today are probably much better than mid-century parents learning how to grow this child into a responsible, productive, loving, happy, open adult human being. Um, but 
this family spoiled their kids. And I think that in this particular case, as we're going to see, it meant not having to be accountable, not, mm. not, you know, not becoming progressively more responsible for your own happiness and that kind of thing. Right. So Dale Ewell was known to say, I never want my children to have to slave under a sweltering sun every day. So that was about him. That right. wasn't about them. I mean, it was about them, but it was about him, I think. But and Dale Yule knew a, what it was like. That's a common theme, though, right? Like, generations want better for the next generation after them. Yes. So yes. it's that slippery slope. I mean, it's it's a good yeah. thing to want, but you really got to hone in on, yeah, what you're saying, accountability, self-accountability. Yeah, and... And realizing, you know, I remember when I became a parent, you know, there were some things about myself that I did not like. And I really wanted to not repeat some of the things that my parents did because they that's what they learned to do. Right. So um, I guess in Dale Yule's point mind, I learned from my father parents on this farm. He was raised on a farm in Ohio, uh, just long, hard work days. He didn't want that for his children because he thought he was miserable. But in fact, you know, he was a dreamer and he had a love of airplanes, which caused him over time to become a millionaire because he was such a hard working person. He was smart. He graduated college in aeronautic engineering. And again, he made his fortune. He made his fortune predominantly selling airplanes to large-scale farmers. Uh, let's talk about Glee, the mom. And, you know, they always say it's all, everything's the mom's fault, but it wasn't her fault. Glee was born to a family of means in Chicago, so she didn't have to swelter. Uh, she was adventurous. She graduated college in inter-American studies. And at one point, she joined the CIA as a Spanish interpreter and was stationed with the CIA in Argentina. Very and this cool. is also going to, I think it's very cool. I mean, you know, I, I find that to be just enviable. Totally. I would, you know. Oh, it's yeah, so adventurous just, and outside of the box. Act, absolutely. And so we see here, while Dale was a dreamer with a razor sharp focus, Perhaps Glee was an idealist. In fact, Glee was known by those who knew her as a philanthropist, a community builder. She worked for a teacher for a while. But with this wealth that they developed, um, she was able to help build community. And some people remembered her as a Martha Stewart-level entertainer. Uh, so Martha Stewart-level entertainer. Okay, that's also not me, and I don't envy that. So you yeah, can have and that. Yeah, I was glee. just thinking about that when Martha Stewart, when the persona of a Martha Stewart was was being born. I remember that I was a kid, so she was became very popular. But then it became a very there was a part that, like you said, there's a flip side to that idealistic, entertaining housewife, domestic type of person. There was a flip side, so there was some backlash. I remember people didn't want to be pigeonholed like that <laughs> or what felt like pigeonholing no, yes and also i think there was perfectionism coming yeah. out of those early martha stewart days she's not as like that ever since she got out of prison she's she way hasn't cooler been now <laughs> she's way, way cooler now 
<laughs> I like Martha Stewart now. Oh, she's her. in her 70s, I guess. Yep. Um, never. <laughs> she's mellowed away from some of that perfectionism. And I think she's more of an every person per kind of person. Um, so, I mean, you know, we see that, that, um, Glee might've had perfectionism in her makeup. And, um, so anyway, they met at a party, Glee and Glee and Dale. Glee and Dale is just such a cute, I don't know. They married in 1961, um, by 1992, in the mur- uh, at the time of the murders, they were worth $8 million. A Western Piper was the name of the company. And uh, Dale and Glee also owned a lot of farmland. So they, he, you know, they were diversifying uh, quite a bit, probably the whole time that they were doing business. Some said that Dale was a ruthless businessman. Uh, ruthless to me means cutthroat, which is a violent image. And, you know, that is a little bit concerning. Someone asked him once, what did he do for fun? And he said he goes home and looks at his bank accounts. So money worshiping, ruthless Mm. business owner. uh Uh-oh. Yeah. But he was also known as a gentle giant uh, by people. I mean, they loved him. But anyway, there's, there's stuff going on here. Perfectionism. Uh, love of money yeah 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 and then on top of that when tiffany was just a baby it was a terrible car accident that left her injured so badly she still had a metal plate in her head the day she died and for this reason glee was especially um very cautious with her and and dale was too they were very fearful about loss i think they went through that loss, didn't know how it was going to turn out with their daughter. Dale refused to travel with his whole family in an airplane because he did not want his entire family to perish together. I, I find that um, very eerily um, premonitional. Uh, that's yeah. probably not a word. But no, but yeah, it's uh, that's my dog, Watson. Uh, that's your it's dog, very, Watson. Right, yeah. It's very much a strange, but I find that also a very strange reflex because I have an opposing reflex. My reflex has always been, I, I would want all of my family together because should anyone have to perish, let it all be together. Let no one have to stand on the earth totally alone now. Right. Yeah. I agree. Uh, That's kind of how I I feel about it. Yeah. And you know what? I can, I hear Watson and I can tell what he's doing. He's saying to my dogs, get up, wake up, wake up, Tiffany and wake, Tiffany, wake up, Fiona and Pippin. Oh my God. Anyway, here's a story that I think sort of encapsulates some of what is going on in this family. Um, day, day, number one, Dana was a handful as a child. He made up lies, tall tales. They got bigger and bigger and more alarming as he grew up. Um, uh, both parents were very distraught about this. They were very upset about it. Um, I, di- I couldn't find anything in everything that I was reading about this murder. 
And the backstory of this family, I couldn't find anything that, that, so they did this, they took it to a therapist, they did this and that and this. All I found was that this was a bane of their existence. Uh, His father, at one point, uh, bought uh, Dana a brand new uh, BMW. Okay, that's a, that's a, spoiled. Okay, but go ahead. But what happened was Dana took it out. Uh, this is when he graduated high school. He took it out and he totaled it right away. He just was reckless. And his father bought him a new one, exactly like the old one that he just wrecked. And he had to swear that he would not tell anyone. Nobody in the Yule family was allowed to tell anyone that there had been this wreck and that Dale had bought him a new one. And so there were secrets, secrets. Well, so you're right. Secrets are a red flag, but I think this scenario detail for detail is actually replayed across American communities quite frequently. I knew of two kids in high school that had BMWs who wrecked them and were purchased new vehicles afterwards twice, two kids that I went to high school with. So I think the scenario is fairly common but it's such a red flag for the things that we talked about in terms of accountability. When you're trying to be accountable for oneself, I think high school's the moment to catch that, you know, in the brain to say, well, I did have a nice car, but then I wrecked it. So when I get another nice car, I should go out of my way not to wreck it. I mean, it's a very simple lesson, but you're never going to get it if you never have to earn that next car, you know? If the biggest thing about the car wreck was not, thank God you're okay, Mm-hmm. Or things can be replaced, right? Um, or any innumerable. But the biggest thing about this whole thing, the story wasn't about somebody's safety or another a new beginning. Or thank God we have the money to replace this, or the insurance to replace this, or whatever. The biggest thing is don't tell anybody. Yeah. So that tells me that image is yeah. in this milieu of numerous things going on fear love of money perfectionism image yeah and i'm not trying to indict this family i think we all have some of that yes yes because image when it it's it happens so subtly suddenly you're not so much interested in the supporting of reality you're looking for just the image of the reality you're looking for, which of course does not require the reality match. <laughs> you know? And so yeah, I mean, I went through that with my kids. I didn't want yeah. the neighbors to know this and that. Now I don't give a hoot. Well, I still, neighbor- you know, with my kids, I still go through it. With myself, I go through it. It's just like, I just, just don't tell anyone. I just don't want to, right. you know, be, and I think you want to crawl under a rock. That's the feeling you're, I think. Trying yeah. To- you want to hide from. So this is, yeah. there's nothing wrong with this family for being these ways, but just for me, if I'm looking at this murder, I'm trying to figure out what is going on with this killer. Yeah. And get here. Um, and so we're going to find out. So anyway, it's time to talk about Dana and his hitman and how another co-conspirator. So there was, you know, there was Dana, the hitman, and some other people who got caught up in this whole case. Two days after the murder, April 22nd, 1992, the Yule's housekeeper of more than 10 years, so she knew this family inside and out, arrived with two of her crew to the Yule home, and they noticed a neighbor of the Yule's was sort of hovering around outside and 
That was weird. So Rose knocked on the door and eventually she used her key to gain entrance. The neighbor said that Dana had just called him from school and he was worried about his parents who were not returning their phone calls. So again, this is two days after the murder. So they got murdered on Easter Sunday. So this was Tuesday and Dana is calling the neighbor. Within minutes, Rose and the neighbor and the rest of the crew found a ransacked house and Rose, bless her heart, she says, this is not what the Yules, this is not how the Yules keep their house. You remember, you know, Glee is kind of a perfectionist. So anyway, she knew something was terribly wrong, though it was tossed around and everything. Looking a little further, she saw a dead body, and that's when everybody ran screaming from the house, including the neighbor Dana had asked to check on his parents. The Fresno County Sheriff's Office was immediately called, and I, I think it was the neighbor who called. Um a lead detective was summoned by the name of John Sousa. He knew he had to find out why the mother, the daughter, the father had been murdered. If he knew why, he would know who. I find that interesting. Uh, motive leads oh. to the guilty party. You figure out who's got the most to gain, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, at the crime scene, he went from body to body over and over. What could they tell him? He was listening, and I hear that all the good detectives, murder detectives, do that. They they believe that the body will tell you, at I least some. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After determining that Tiffany was shot first, then Glee, then Dale, he also determined that whoever did this had tried to make it look like a robbery, but robbers don't. He he also thought, you know, robbers know how to rob. Sousa told his boss, a, a guy doesn't know squat about robbing a house. Whoever did this is not a robber. For example, drawers were pulled out from the top to bottom. And, you know, I found out that when you pull drawers out from top to bottom, every good burglar knows that's going to make the whole dresser fall over. So you you pull out from the bottom to the top and you move, you know, you close the drawers as you go to anyway. Um, robbers upon entering a house and being interrupted by two women would have just run off. They would have just fled. Why would a robber kill the two women and lie in wait for Dale? How would they even know that Dale was on his way? So since Dale was murdered last, the killer must have targeted Dale and Glee and Tiffany. Well, I, I said that wrong. The killer must have targeted Dale, making Glee and Tiffany merely collateral damage for the killer. That's was his thinking at the beginning. Uh, killer didn't mean to kill, you know, the the women after they were they were after Dale, or they wouldn't have waited. That was the initial thought. Why spend time staging this scene, though, after Dale was hit? No hit man's going to do that. They hit and they go. So it was just weird. But already he's picking up some clues that, okay, something's going on here and it doesn't have anything to do with robbery. Yeah. Detectives had spoken with John Zent, an FBI agent who was retired, who was also the father of Monica Zent, She's important because Monica and Dana were getting very serious. They both went to school together. They were getting serious. And the parents of both of them were meeting at the Yule's Beach House that Easter. 
and they just wanted to meet each other because their kids are getting serious. Okay. I like that. John sent told authorities after the weekend that nothing whatsoever portended of the bloodbath to come. Everyone was relaxed. Dana and Dale played tennis together before Dale flew home and Dana and Monica went to the Zins house that night, Easter Sunday. So that's why Dana was not with Glee and Tiffany and Dale as they were murdered because he was at the Zents house, FBI agent. That's so interesting that he would date someone whose parent is an FBI agent. His mom is a CIA agent. Like, it's just interesting to me that that those particular stars aligned. Not that they're meaningful in any way, just I just find that interesting. <laughs> well, my, my mind must be darker than yours because I'll tell you why. I'm thinking Dana Ewell uh, it was very serious about Monica because he set up this whole situation where he could be at an FBI agent's house oh, yeah. when his family Good was point. killed. Now, do I know that that happened? Uh, no, it didn't come out You're as right, a fact though, that's in the a, case. It's a nice added bonus for him. I'm at an FBI. Oh, I was with my FBI agent, you know, <laughs> like my yeah. girlfriend whose dad's never. Right. We were all hanging I out. I mean, I think this guy is... Uh, I think he might be predatory in that way in mm -hmm. that he's, you know, he's premeditating yep. probably as a seven-year-old. How am I going to kill my parents? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good The point, next day. Actually. Yeah. Okay. Very devious. The next day, yes, I'm devious. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> not really. What do they say? Sorry. Not sorry. Sorry. Okay. Not sorry. You're using your powers for good. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my that's not what my dogs are saying right now. But anyway. <laughs> or or Watson at your house. Yeah. You'll notice he's quiet now. <laughs> yeah, he's quiet. Yeah, he got in trouble. The next day, Monica and Dana went back to school. And then Zent got a call from Dana on Tuesday morning. And Dana said he had just found out his family was killed and in the home. And Zent picked Dana up at Santa Clara and flew him back home to uh, Fresno. So when authorities asked John about Dana's reaction to his parents and sister's murder, John Sent said Dana was in disbelief, great shock when he saw him at the airport. He said that Dana is a careful, very meticulous person. That's a quote. Careful, very meticulous person. Ooh. And that John could see that Dana was going into deep, deep shock. Okay, you can tell that John Zent is not a psychologist. But anyway, yeah, it there's looks something like off-putting about Mr. Zent's uh, yeah. level. I don't know. It's just the his his I don't know. Just I'd be interested to see what some of his FBI cases were like, you know? I mean, just he just seems odd in this case to me, you know? Just yeah. seems strange, almost I don't know. I don't even want to go further than that, but I've always had an off-putting feeling about his level of participation monica's too because i guess we'll put it in the complicity or com complicit category right i mean there's some level of complicity is that the right way to say that complicit, yeah that's the right word complicity if you're i don't know in in the end i have to look back and that's what i think right right no you're saying that you know monica i mean i don't know i here's what i think i think you're right oh. i think that monica um, 
I will never believe that she did not know right. what was going on at some level. Right. And John Zint, um, You're an FBI her dad, agent, sir. <laughs> yeah, and he's he's telling the police that that Dana's just a very careful and meticulous person, and he goes into deep shock instead of Dana is acting like. Well, I will. I, the next yeah. part will kind of illuminate why I think your instincts are right. I do. Mm-hmm. In Seuss's first interview with him, Dana Ewell's demeanor was tight, polished, and blank. Okay, tight, polished, and blank. That is what uh, Zent was saying. I think yeah, right when Sousa and Sousa's partner had Dana with him in the murder scene, trying to figure out what was missing and what the layout was all about and so forth. Dana was weird according to Sousa. So Zed might say deep shock. Sousa's going, okay, this is weird. Because Dana's biggest concern seemed to be, biggest concern seemed to be getting an itemized receipt for everything the murder investigators were taking. Bagging up, cutting up, and so forth. Like cutting out pieces of carpet. I want a receipt for that piece of carpet. That's weird. And when Dana entered the family home, he didn't seem to react at all to the chalked-in body outlines, the massive amount of blood, the smell, no reaction. Just, can I have a receipt? That's very strange. It's messed up. I think Mm -hmm. it's messed up. I don't think that he's in deep shock. I think this is the real meal deal. This is a blank person who only cares about money. To me, that is what receipts are about, money. A hundred percent. Yeah. You're yeah. you're tracking every penny. So how come they didn't arrest him how weird he was right then? Well, obviously, they've got to check out every other suspect because for one thing, he wasn't even there. He had a perfectly good alibi. Right. FBI, you know, doesn't also, you know, being weird isn't illegal, thankfully. So no. No, <laughs> it's not weird. Either that or I'd be in prison. But anyway. Uh, you would too, Caroline. I definitely Let's face would. it. Yeah, yeah. In fact, if there's a knock at the door, don't answer it. Yeah, I'm not home. The the Susa. Okay, what did they do? They they looked at all these suspects. They had business partners that were very angry at Dale for taking over Western Piper when the other owner had to go to jail for some kind of drug smuggling. <laughs> I think that's funny. Anyway. There was a time when Dale himself was flying into Mexico for business purposes, expanding his business. And some people thought, okay, well, maybe he was packing the planes with drugs. I thought there was that. a guy. I'll admit they, it. I thought it for a yeah, minute. Looking yeah. at the story. <laughs> yeah. And they, you know, they had to run these things down. I mean, this is what took uh, quite a long time. And so, cause the murder happened in 92 and I, you know, we'll get to when the trial was, but it was years. So anyway, and it wasn't a cold case ever. It wasn't. It was just, it took years to catch uh, the killers. But anyway, um, you know, they, they were looking at uh, Bob Purcell. Bob Purcell was at Western Piper. He was now going to become president. Um, Dana described Purcell to Sousa as always wanting to sue somebody. He he said he lied to my father more than once. Purcell was known as a loose cannon on deck, according to Dana. Would he kill to take over the business? So that had to be looked into and so forth. And he was with his family 
this Purcell guy. He's with his family, like almost everybody else in America. Mm. Uh, not not everybody else, but you know, plenty right. of people with, with their family on Easter Sunday mm. hiding things. So anyway, another suspect was Jack Whitman, who was the head mechanic. Now that's a powerful person in any airline company or airplane company, according to Dana. Um, Jack was a drunk and a divorced man who couldn't stop complaining about his kids. My father called him a hothead, Dana said. So, I mean, you know, Dana is like uh, um, suspect spotting for these police. That's suspicious in and of itself. Dale's employees confirmed that they were afraid of Jack's temper at times, but he was cleared. He was with his family. He had lots of people who knew where he was on Easter Sunday. What about hear <laughs> What about Glee with the CIA thing? What about Glee? She was just an interpreter, though, as it turned out. She 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 didn't even interpret anything classified that would haunt and kill her family. But Sousa and his team followed every lead, including this one. One particular airline was very angry at Dale for charging them for aircraft repair. Uh, Dale's assistant of many years told investigators that Dale was upset about this conflict for a very long time, and it was eating at him at the time of his death. And he was, Dale was described as stubborn. But there again, this led nowhere for the investigators. Um, But, you know, Sousa and his partners were looking into the Yule family also, including Dale, including Glee, including Tiffany and certainly including Dana. Most people saw them as highly respected and admired. Tiffany was seen as smart, painfully shy, a sweet kid, and very dear. Glee was a nonstop worker for so many charities and community groups. She also sat on the board that selected judges, and that was pursued as a possible link to maybe a disgruntled judge candidate that she opposed. They looked into that. When they looked into Dana, Dana was known by everybody in the hood, the neighborhood, in the school, where he went to school as Mr. Wall Street. He even told Detective Sousa that he had pictures on the walls of his bedroom of the actual Wall Street. That's my interest, Dana said proudly. I mean, some people have a, they're Christian, they have a cross on their wall. He's got Wall Street. Uh, He wore Armani suits and he drove nice cars. Yeah. And you also crashed them. But anyway, he, (laughs) he, 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 that was his persona. And during the process of investigating every possible person of interest, investigators had been told to, to look at by friends and family. In other words, they got a lot of tips. Sousa and his partner kept one eye out for Dana. What was he up to? Because he was the only living member of the Dale and Glee Yule family. And they had plenty to gaze upon. For one thing, what it was the continuous request by Dana, uh, sending them letters, advising them in writing that every article taken from the residents had to be accounted for. I need a receipt. Never one time did he ask, have you caught 
the murderer of my family yet. 100%. That is the damning evidence to me. That's the damning evidence. I mean, you, I guess it's not damning that you're the killer, but you clearly do not care. You are unattached to what has happened. You are unattached to anything other than the outcome, which is you getting money. And that's it. Well, that's exactly what the detectives were thinking. By this time, they had exhausted so many leads. So they went to Santa Clara campus to learn more about Dana. His friends confirmed that he was very focused on becoming a millionaire right now. (laughs) That's all he ever talked about, being a millionaire. He followed the billionaire's club The Billionaire's Boys Club leader, Joseph Hunt, uh, which was strange because Joseph was in prison for running a Ponzi scheme plus two counts of murder, but Dana just loved him. He even wrote to him in prison. Two counts of murder? um, Jeez. Yeah, but Hunt uh, stopped writing Dana back when he found out that Dana was not a woman. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> that's fitting. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, would, would Dana Ewell <laughs> have gotten a sex change operation if he thought that that would make him the boy, billionaire boys club yes. president? I'm going to yes. say yes. If he thought yeah, he was, would do anything. Yeah. I mean, if he thought it was profitable, he would have done what it t- took. <laughs> One kind of hinky thing that the uh, people found out, that the detectives found out, is when they went to the Uh, college was they found out that he got an F in a business ethics class for uh, plagiarism. Mm. So in other words, uh, Dana is going to plagiarize in a business ethics class. The layers. And then when (laughs) he tried to get back in the class, he tried to withdraw from the class. The instructor was having none of it. No, you're getting an F. Yeah. And um, Dana wrote him a long letter And uh, in the book, Catch Me If You Can, which is a book about this killing, um, I read where um, he, uh, he, the professor, became very terrified of Dana because of this letter. Uh, Basically, the letter said, I'm a perfectionist. I have to be perfect. I need to be perfect. And I'm going to do everything in my power from this point forward to be perfect so that I will never, ever be flunked again. And the professor was so frightened that he showed the letter to a psychology professor at the school, and the psychologist at the school said, "Um, I think this guy is a a sociopath, psychopath. Mm. Uh, You need to be worried. Um, And you know what? I'm not going there as far as what might be going on medically with Dana Ewell or any other, any other killer. That is not my thing. But I did find this very illuminating. That that is very interesting. And you know, it's interesting to me that in schools you'll have these large psychology departments, but yet you still have phenomena like Mr. Ewell here. Going off and murdering, you've got Ted Bundy, you know, U-Dub's got to contend with this guy who was on their campus. I mean, how otherwise would you see these folks but through their work, right? Their papers, their writings, their, right. and the college campus. 
is this hotbed for finding that in people, like all their writings, all their stuff. But miraculously, you'll never hear about it unless this person goes off and becomes a serial killer or becomes, you know, a murderer. And then suddenly we're able to look back and see, oh, there it all is. It's interesting to me that we wouldn't have mechanisms yet to catch these things sooner or to redirect them sooner, you know? And maybe we do. Oh, my God, you're right. I mean, you know, I feel like I had a pretty good college career, but nobody knows about it because I haven't killed anybody. Well, the, but they, that's right. I mean, that's the interesting piece. It's like maybe that's already happening. We just don't know it. <laughs> and it can't be a perfect system. You know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We, I don't know either. All I know is that, I mean, if Dana Ewell is so much a killer that you can even tell from the letters he writes. Right. <laughs> um then he is just uh, hopeless, I guess. I but guess. anyway, after a week on this campus, the detectives had a portrait of Dana as selfish, self-centered, pompous, driven, focused utterly on becoming a millionaire. His closest friend was his roommate, a guy by the name of Joel Radisvich. And Dana, who was uh, dapper Dan, you know, and he dated all these girls and had all this money, Joel was just this loser type who was in love with video games, guns, and drugs. And what the hell were these two people doing together? Well, now, you know, we know now that what they were doing being together was that, you know, they, Dana needed him. Dana needed him. I I've lost my place in my script is what's going on. Um <clears throat> we are on mine's one big thing. We're in the Ponzi scheme. Last paragraph. Oh, okay, on the... I got it. I got it. What okay. were these two doing together? I got it. Okay. Thank you. I feel like I have a ton of background going on today, so I apologize, Andy. If oh no, don't. And you know what? You Andy says you can't even hear our dogs hardly, and it's cute. Okay, good. So good, we good. don't need to worry. The detectives found out something that changed the course of the investigation, though, and that was that Dana had been written up in the school newspaper as a self-made millionaire already, who had started selling planes as a kid and now was a tycoon while still earning his business degree. Huh, that's sick. So Dana Ewell was not only troubled, but he was now appropriating his father's success story. Oh. The school newspaper article accidentally morphed into regional news with Dana Ewell owning his own company, a millionaire college student, and his rumors had it, and it was finally verified later, that his father found out and was so angry that he told Dana he was going to change his will because of Dana's lifetime record of telling lies and tall tales. And this had just gone too far. And, you know, the horrible thing about all this is, you know, how Dana's family was very image conscious. 
well, this regional, uh, this uh, local article went regional. And now everybody in the neighborhood knew that Dana was uh, appropriating his father's identity. And um, I don't know, in this investigation, let's face it, Dana Ewell was now becoming the most serious suspect. But how, how did he do it? Because, you know, he was with the Zens. Yeah. So detectives had asked Dana during the initial interview about guns in the house. And it was just the circuitous thing about guns and ammo and all this stuff that Dana came up with. But one of the things he said is that his dad kept nine nine millimeter um, ammo in the bedside table by his bed Um, and that it was now gone. It's gone. Um, So let me get this straight. The killer came to your house and used the ammo that was in the bedside table of your father how would he know that it was there for them <laughs> so i mean you know before they left santa clara Susan and curtis th- they decided to make a stop by dana's dorm room to see if they could meet this roommate that just was this oddity that he would be friends with somebody who was on the opposite end of the spectrum that he wanted to be at self-made millionaire and they knocked on the door you know knock 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 and when they introduced themselves, showed their badges. Uh, An interesting thing happened when Joel did appear at the door. He saw the badges, looked at them, and said, are you here to arrest me? Such a weird thing to say. (laughs) I mean, unless there was some kind of overreaching, like maybe he's a rabble rouser, and he's like, you know, show me your warrant style. Are you here to arrest me? Otherwise, go away. But what an odd joke to try to lay out. I think prosecuting attorneys call that consciousness of guilt, uh-huh. um, you know, and, the, yeah. and you know, the other thing is Shakespeare called it, you know, the truth will out. Uh, you yeah. cannot keep the truth out. Yeah, that's true. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. You really can't. It's not even worth trying. <laughs> I know. That's why Shakespeare is a Shakespeare. Right. Somebody can't, people can't say to him, you're not a Shakespeare. Well, yes, I am. Anyway. <laughs> With this close-up look at Dana and his drugged-up killer friend, Joel, um, I want to look again at Dale's upbringing because now that I know the horror that is Dana, you know, what is his family like? What, what, where, where, where did all this come from? Well, right. Dale Ewell had three brothers, Dan, Ben, and Richard. And he had a sister, too, who we'll meet later. The murder of their brother, Dale, left them shattered, as you might imagine. Who would want to kill an entire family, minus Dana, of course? He was the lucky one, right? But then something happened to these brothers during their grieving process where they began to be suspicious of Dana. Their brothers, um, this suspicion on the part of their brothers started with Dana's behavior at the funeral home with the brothers. Dana was picking out cheap caskets for everybody, saying it would be good enough for Tiffany, etc. Dana then refused the funeral home suggestion that he purchase an ornament for his father's casket. Maybe, you know, some little metal plate or something that, um, anyway, it was a $35 item, $35 item. Why spend the money on something I can't see, said Dana. So, I mean, he was cheap wadding his way through the funeral home. And it just creeped the brothers out. 
And then they were further mortified by Dana's behavior at the funeral in which Dana appeared to all observers to be totally nonplussed. It was like he was at a party, dinner party. And Sousa had been there too, and he saw it too. Dana wasn't sad. He wasn't shook up. He wasn't pretending to be grieving. And when people came up to him to extend condolences, Dana Yule made note of their jewelry and commented to the consoler that he admired what he saw. Okay. I mean, I want to give the benefit of the doubt to say people do, they do really, really weird things at weddings and funerals. I mean, I just think these are these translational pieces of life that just cause other humans to like a full moon, you know, they just get weird for a day. But this is beyond (laughs) weird given every other thing we know. It's just the asking for receipts during a murder investigation is like, that should be illegal. Obviously, they're going to be catalogs. You're in the middle of a murder investigation. And P.S. The victims were your parents and your sister. Like, you should probably check in at some point into what's happening around you. But he's just focused on money and admiring the things around him on the people that are around him. It's weird. It's yeah. Weird. Yeah. That the parent, but my family has been annihilated. Let's pretend for a minute that he's not the killer. My yeah. family has been annihilated, but this is great because this gives me another social outing where I can introduce myself and make networking happen. Right. I mean, you know, that that's weird. It's just weird. It's, it's disconnected weird. from reality. So that makes it I weird, I guess. Where I'm going. <laughs> right. So on May 18th, 1992, so this is not far, long after, about five weeks after the murders, all three brothers came to see Sousa. So they traveled to yeah. see him. They felt terrible, awful. They were in disbelief, but they just could not get it out of their head that Dana that Dana might be the killer. We we just thought he was closed, but then he started nagging Ben, who is an attorney, the brother Ben, who's an attorney, to read the will already. I mean, every day it was read the will, read the will. So they finally, you know, decided let's just get it over with. And they they met together with Dana, the only survivor, and they all heard at the same time, they were in the office of the attorney and they're at a table and they all heard that Dana would receive everything down the road because all the Ewell family assets were to be placed in trust to be paid to Dana in increments when he turned 30 and then the final payment when he was 35. And Dana screamed and pounded his fist into the table so hard it made the table lift off the floor. How could my father do this to me? He was so over the moon pissed off. I mean, pissed off. Well, no self-awareness either. You're not even trying to... I mean, did he research what a grieving family member ought to be behaving? (laughs) No, he's not. He's not hoping. He has no self-awareness he just, I mean, I could, I could really get wound up about this guy, but I, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking that daddy Dale really did get pissed off at Dana about his lies and fabrications yeah. and the fact that what he had worked his whole life to produce yeah. his son was appropriating. 
and bragging about and writing articles about. Yeah. I mean, that's um, no I BMW. Believe... That's your life story. You can't hide yeah. this mistake from anybody. No, you can't. No. His money worship, his pretentiousness, all of that was now out in circulation for the whole world to see. And Dana's parents, Dale, who is a proud, proud man, proud of what he has achieved. And Glee, who is a perfectionist and wants to be that person who saves the community. And those two people now have to live with the shame of their son, the liar, their son, the weirdo. Um, not that there's anything wrong with being a weirdo. Just let's go back to liar. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I'm sure they never thought that he would be a killer, but I wonder, I wonder. I, you know, I don't think that that would, I don't, I honestly don't think that ever would have entered their mind. It honestly wouldn't have entered mine. I just, I am shocked though at, um, you know, the story as a whole, but I, I, I still, no matter how many times I look over, I don't see it coming because it is so shocking to take it that far, that greed would take it that far, you know, and the lack know. of, um, feeling about it. He's got no remorse, no, em no empathy. He's got none of the feelings. You're right. I mean, no. that's like psychopath. No. <laughs> you know, I, this next part, I have to tell because it, it just breaks my heart. Just remembering that Dale and Glee were never ones to flaunt their wealth. They lived modestly. They showed their children a privileged life, but also a life of public service with family at the center of everything. And their long time made Rose, Evita, she always said that other families, wealthy families, that she worked for didn't do that much with their kids, but that Dale and Glee lived a life that revolved around their kids and their community. They were always taking their kids places. Their favorite thing in life was their family being together. It seems to me though, that they wanted a perfect family and there were some serious cracks when it came to Dana. I think that something, you know, they just were the perfect family, but they missed these cues, this lying little child. When he tacked the Wall Street poster on his wall as a icon of his aspirations, and I guess that wouldn't be so bad if you didn't have the lying in there, and then the recklessness and the Armani suits, I don't know. It just makes me so sad. But anyway, yeah, I agree. I think I think it is sad because you. It is something that could have been intervened on in earlier moments in different ways that may right. maybe would have had an impact on the outcome. I think so. I mean, we'll never know. Right. As time went by, Dana went back to college. Susa poked around there some more and discovered that Joel Radisvich's friends. Um, that and from Joel's friends, that Joel had ordered books on how to make a silencer. So this was widely known uh, that you know you hardly ever read, but when you do read, it's about how to make a silencer. Um, that became a break in the case, actually, but it still wasn't enough to link Dana to Joel. As months went by since the murder and all other leads dried up. Sousa decided it was time to do more than just interview people. So he asked the narcotics detail to put a surveillance team together to watch Dana 24-7. 
And the team discovered that Dana had moved into his family's home, and that wasn't all. Joel Radisfitch was living with him. And in fact, at one time, um, Dana tried to put Joel Radisfitch on his insurance, health insurance, as a dependent. Or like, I don't I don't know. That's weird. I know. That's super weird. Let's just commit some murder. Okay, after that, let's do insurance fraud. So you anyway. earned it, my coverage. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> my God. They These two killers, you know, Seuss, uh, Dana and his hitman, Joel, they were talking on payphones. So the cops, they had people on all their payphones, next to payphones when they would have the, see them out on payphones and listen to their conversations. So they had, um, they, they would stand in the phone booth, you know, next to Dana's or next to Joel's and listen to their side of the conversation. Well, and I for our younger a, viewers, yeah, before you could have a phone in your pocket, you had to find a phone on the side of the street they literally could be anywhere. They were often outside of grocery stores or libraries or bus stops sometimes, just depended. But there would be banks of them. There would be four hanging on a wall or four booths hanging in those little vestibule booths. Vestibule booths. So think Superman, you know, going in the phone booth. There could be two of those next to each other. And so they would be standing just side by side. <laughs> I mean, very old school. Yes, the, 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 um, I miss those by the way. I, I mean, do too. You know, <laughs> I think it's probably the times that came with them, you know, where everything was a little bit simpler. Yeah. But anyway, they also, the, the, the investigators realized that Dana had uh, a pager and Joel had a pager. And so they got a dummy replica. They, the investigators, made a dummy replica of the pagers. I don't know how they did that, but they did. And so they were able to get pages every time Dana got one from Joel or Joel got one from Dana. And they would um, wiretap uh, the conversations. That Now, and that so is were, interesting because the pagers were small, again, for the younger viewers, small little devices, you know, that yeah. you would you would clip to your pocket and they would beep if someone called. And so they could relay a number to you that you would call back or they could relay different numerical symbols like H-E-L-P or, you know, I mean, just 911 right. was a very common one, meaning it was an emergency, call me back. Um, yeah. But so that is interesting. I do wonder how they dummied it if, because it wouldn't have been a SIM card like we know today or, yeah. you know, something like that. I wonder if I they don't just know what they do, but the same beeper. I mean, I, I, I don't know what they did. I just am really very impressed with these detectives just not yeah. um not throwing their hands up and calling it cold i just think that um very impressive uh what one thing that happened though is that dana and joel kind of started thinking that they might be tapped or or they might be you know they got a little paranoid and so they quit doing that they quit calling each other on pay phones and so the investigators uh decide to shake everything up they went to um, Dana's uh, dorm room. They knocked on the door. They opened the do Dana opened the door, and uh, Monica was in there, but not Joel. And so the investigators said that they just wanted uh, Dana to know that they think his friend Joel Radisvich was the killer. And Dana turned white as a translucent piece of onion skin paper. 
I mean, he turned absolutely right, white, no, no blood in his head whatsoever, as if there ever had been any. But anyway, uh, and that got the phone conversations going again. And oh there were plenty gosh. of phone conversations. Please read the book if you're interested to know more about the phone conversations, because it was really cat and mouse. That's why it was called um, Catch Me I If You Can. I love these detectives. These guys I do are too. great. I do too. And here's what they found out, that Dana and Joel thought Susan and, Susa and Curtis were dumb as rocks and never would have any evidence on them. Their nicknames for Susan and Curtis were Mutt and Jeff. When Joel programmed his pager, he programmed it K-I-L-L-A-J-R, as in Killa Joel Radisvich, <laughs> as in just, call, I mean, he might as well have had business cards. Just call, just call Killa Radisvich if you need a hit. Yeah. And, oh, no. and they were living large, these two. Why? Because an account had been set up by um, his parents, Dana's parents, for his maternal grandmother, who was in her late 80s, she was in a residential care, and she had been taken, they took the money Aww. that was for her, uh, about $400,000, and they siphoned it off for their own personal use. And that was supposed they to be for taken, her to live in this residential care facility. That's right. wrong. Very wrong. Right. right. And Tiffany, Tiffany had investments. Um were $300,000 and they cashed out all of her investments. Mm -hmm. So even though he was on a, a trust and he wouldn't have money from that, he also got $300,000 from life insurance. So that these two idiots, killers, were taking expensive helicopter trips, to helicopter lessons, trips to Europe, buying cars, and a car for Monica Zent. They were even paying for Monica Zent's when I say they, I mean Dana, even paying for Monica's tuition to law school. Really? Why can't your rich father, the yeah. FBI agent, do it? So, your, yeah, your FBI dad wasn't curious about where your tuition came from because I'm sure he worked a large portion of his career for that college tuition to get paid. So that's strange. <laughs> Unless she's pocketing the tuition. I don't know. <laughs> so they had everything but the weapon. So they started looking for the weapon. And, um, you know, this whole thing was just, it just terrible. Yeah. And, um, Sousa and Curtis decided to take a trip to Dale Yule's childhood home. They wanted to talk with the father of da Dale Ewing, Austin, <coughs> pardon me to find out more about what was going on in this family, find out, you know, were there guns, you know, they were looking mm -hmm. for the weapon, but they, they also were wondering, you know, what was going on. And they had found out that Dana was scaring, uh, grandpa, um, Yule and, um, was scaring him by calling him and wanting to come visit with him because he was, uh, agreeing with the brothers that Dana was probably the killer. <clears throat> Did that make any sense? Like he's calling him to say, I want to come and get, like, I want to come talk to you. You need to talk to me. You, you guys got me all wrong. When really what he's probably trying to do is like, come kill the grandpa who's not going to give him money. I mean, that's what the grandpa is thinking. Yes. It's yes. very okay. scary. I would also be scared given all the other things that have occurred. 
Yes. And he, he, Austin, the grandfather, ultimately told Dana over the phone, I don't think we need to talk anymore until this murder is solved. Yeah, I would have. Yeah, that seems appropriate. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot more to this section about the family and what all that was about and the brothers and the sisters. And you can read it in the book. Catch me if you can, but. And, look, and as far as family dynamics go, that can ha- you know that can happen without there being a lack of love. I mean, we all have had family scuffles and squabbles that that reach levels that feel forever. I'm never going to speak. Oh no, you know the heartache. I've, I'm never. But that's not really what's happening. You know, the grandpa's not saying I don't love you. He's just saying, look, this is all real weird. Let's just let the dust settle, which to me does seem appropriate in a family, even if the dynamics are off and. There's been this tr- horrific murder, and it it seems appropriate that everyone just take a minute on their own. That yeah. doesn't seem really weird to me. No, he he's probably a wise man. I mean, yeah. you know, he's got to be, I don't know, in his late 80s. Uh, I will say one more thing about Dale's family of origin. He had a sister, as I mentioned before. She had a completely different take on Dana, and she told the investigators this. She was upset with her brothers and her father for suspecting Dana. She told them that they, she told the investigators that they all, everyone in the family had a great motive to suspect Dana because millions of dollars would come to them if Dana were convicted. Betty Mm -hmm. described her brothers as money-grubbing. So, okay. I mean, so there you go. There's some discrepancies. <laughs> it's a family issue. <laughs> like, you know, it's, that's, it's weird. I mean, it's hard to know the truth. Yeah. You know, I, I really want to drill way down into this family and talk about this money worship thing coming mm. out of the depression. Yeah. Coming out of the depression. But I, you know, I need to tell you the rest of the story about the murder. And I know our listeners want to know, when are these people going to get caught? Mm -hmm. Well, the prosecuting attorney was not willing to take this to court yet. And um, so the investigators really felt like they've got to find this weapon. And one day when they were listening to telephone conversations between Dana and Joel Radisvich, a new name came up. And the name was Jack Ponce. And so the investigators wanted to know, well, who is this Jack Ponce? Um, And so they met with Jack and they realized that he had a weapon that Joel had asked him to get rid of. And this was a weapon that Jack Ponce had given to Joel Radisvich's brother. And so the investigators were thinking, well, this is the murder weapon. And so they made a deal with Jack Ponce. And um, Jack Ponce um, didn't know where the weapon was, couldn't find the weapon. So what the uh, investigators did was they took the description of the weapon, they went to the manufacturer, they rebuilt the weapon themselves. They put in nine millimeter uh, ballistics, similar to the ballistics that were found in the bodies of the deceased, and um, and they put on what they believe was the 
uh, silencer. And how would they know what type of silencer was used? They had that book that Radisvich had ordered, and they built one exactly to that book. And when they looked at the bullets that they shot out of this gun they just made, they were exactly the striations and everything replicated um, what had come out of the bodies of the deceased. So they felt like they had the weapon, even though they didn't have the weapon. They felt that they had enough it's really to take impressive. It to court. That is extremely impressive to rebuild. I, I know what happened here. That's really impressive. When the trial happened, then Jack Ponce took an immunity deal, and he was going to be the star witness. And um, Dana and Joel were tied together in this trial, but they had separate attorneys. And it was so weird because Joel's attorney did not try to say that he wasn't a killer because there was just too much evidence. Yeah. Dana was saying, I didn't have anything to do with this. I'm innocent, completely innocent. So the two of them tried together, but different approaches altogether. It was just weird. It was just weird. The jury would get to hear about Dana's character, his lifelong lying, his worship of money, his wanton greed. I want to say greed for money, but that's not deep enough. He wanted to be his father so much that he appropriated his father's identity. Dana was famous for things that were actually the accomplishments of his father who he killed or had killed. The... Prosecution was about to point out that within the Santa Clara College community, Dana Ewell was a successful businessman that he desired to be, and he had created a false persona and was accorded the status of that persona by the community in which he then lived. That persona would end with his graduation, which was pending. However, unless Ewell obtained a whole lot of money quickly, either by legitimate or illegitimate means, the prosecutor asserted that what mattered was not so much Yule's desire to have his father's business, but his unbridled desire to be rich and beyond that, to be accorded the status of power that came with money. He reiterated that the killing of one's parents is an incredibly unusual act. And he argued that in order to prove that act, he needed to establish an unusually strong and unique motive. So all of this was led into court. He pointed to Ewell's unbridled love of money and being perceived as perfect as his desire to succeed and his desire to succeed uh, financially. You know, Radisvich, again, he, he didn't try to say he wasn't guilty, but he tried to blame it all on Dana, et cetera, et cetera. And he was getting a ton of money from Dana. And it was all on the record because, look, everything he did was on the record. He went on these helicopter lessons. He went on trips to Europe. Where did he get that money? After the killings, Dana collected $317,000 from life insurance, $119,000 from Tiffany's assets, plus another three hundred dollars from her investments, Dana went to the bank and got many thousands of dollars in hundreds and few fifties. And over the months, Radisvich spent a total of 43000 to take helicopter lessons, all paid for in cash by hundreds. He took expensive trips. He bought everything with $100 bills. And in the summer of 91, before the murder, he obtained an AK-47 from Jack Ponce. 
And Jack Ponce really was the star of the show. He delivered more than the investigators thought he could um, because he was talking about a confession that um, Joel Radisfitch had told him. And Joel Radisfitch told him that he lay in wait on plastic for the uh, targets to come in. Um, Joel Radisfitch uh, was was uh, uh, interviewed by psychologists to see if he knew the difference between right and wrong. And it came back that, yes, he knew the difference between right and wrong. Dale or Dana Ewell put nothing forward to mitigate his case for life or death uh, after the verdict came in guilty for both of them. I mean, of course, he still really thinks that he's innocent and he's perfect and he's not a cold-blooded killer. Um, so the jurors were, you know, the investigators thought that the jurors were more likely to say that Joel would get the death penalty and Dana would get the death penalty, both of them. But these jurors could not come to an agreement about life or death. So the judge sentenced Dana and Joel each to three consecutive life terms for the murders of Dale, Glee, and Tiffany Yule with the aggravating circumstances of murder for monetary gain and lying in wait. Today, Dale... Dana Yule is serving life. Why do I want to call him Dale? I mean, I think it's because of this appropriation of the father thing. Yeah, don't give I him just what have he's it in my mom. head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's just yeah. uh, so horrifying what this person did to try to be the person he murdered. Well, I think it's the the creepiest part about it is that he would contend today that it didn't happen. I think anyone out there who, when presented with reality and facts that are indisputed, you know, universally agreed upon and understood, and then still contend that that's untrue, there's there's a special something going on there that I don't know anything about. But I steer clear every time I see it happening because you, I don't know how to compete with that kind of crazy, you know? No, no. Uh, if you want to uh, write to Dana, he's on this website for you can write to an inmate, pen pals, at California State Prison in Cochran, Corcoran. Um, Joel Radisfitch does not want you as a pen pal. He's doing life without parole at Mule Creek, California Prison in Ione, California. Um. If you want to go out and look up Dana uh, Yule, because he he's still Dana. That's all I'm going to say. Um, it's hard for me to get Dana. I can get Joel Radisfitch out of my system, but it's hard for me to get Dana Yule out of my head because it's so distilled evil what he did. And the people he murdered, um, especially Tiffany. She never did anything. The only thing she ever did in, wrong in her life was be the sister of this monster. Yes, exactly. I just, it's so sad because I think if you really, yeah, took a fine tooth comb, you'd find nothing but opportunities to intervene 
on that kind of behavior at a young age. But but does that matter? I don't know. None of I don't know that any of us really like. No, I certainly don't know. Um, but at the same time, it's it's just sad because you think about the people that he treated that way all through his life, but who just aren't a part of the story, but who were impacted probably on the same level. I mean, this kid had to go to public school with a bunch of other kids. I'm sure he tortured somebody at some point, you know. I'm sure. I, I just feel like he was on a Dana. I think that Dana was the only person on earth. That's it. I don't think he saw these other people as no, people. He was going to be using people for whatever gain they had to give him. I mean, it's just sad to think about these people walking the planet, but there are people like this walking around the planet. My my uh, sadness for Dale, you Ewell was that he only knew money as a solution to all of his problems. Yeah. And he, you know, to solve a problem, he threw money at it. And it was only at the end of his life that he finally had a consequence dished out to Dana and he never told him about it. And so Dana murdered him thinking, I'm going to get all of your identity, all of your money by having you and my whole family murdered. So there won't be any heirs and I'd be the only heir. So um, what if he did tell him about it? And that's what caused Dana to, I mean, because if we look at the timeline, he bought that gun in the summer of 91. So July through to April, I mean, that's like what, about eight months? Yeah. 10 months, you know? Yeah. Thinking so, you wonder when the article came out when they would have had an argument about it potentially and maybe what Dana had decided he was going to do about that. Um, Yes. And maybe he thought he was heading him off at the past, right? I'll get it before he has a chance to change the will so that it won't matter. Or he's never followed through on anything before. Right. He's only, he's only, he would never do anything to keep me from his money. Right. Um, I... We'll put an end now to our story of the Yule family that included a family annihilator, Daniel, Dana, I can't say his name, Dana Yule, and he had a sick friend named Joel Radisvich. And I'll, I guess I just always want to remember the quiet dignity of Dale, of Glee, and of Tiffany Yule. Um, today's story was written by me. Produced and edited by Andy Clausen. Music by Natural Israel. This ends our story today. Please tune in next week for another family murder. And if you liked our podcast, tell your friends and give us a five-star rating, please. It really helps to build our audience and it helps listeners find us. And until next week, hold your family close. Yeah, I recommend you celebrate imperfections and don't keep secrets. Bye-bye. Bye.